Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back to the show and thank you for making us Canada's number one real estate podcast. My name is Nick Hill. And I'm Daniel Foch, and boy, do we have a spicy topic today. Ooh, how spicy are we talking? Are we talking like Sriracha, Frank's Red Hot? I'm actually not a Frank's guy anymore. They do do like great advertising with that. Uh, I put that bleep on everything, the old, like the old lady. <laughs> that, was, that was good. But this hot sauce came out of Keswick. It's called Chetty's Hot Sauce. Shout out to Chetty's, by the way. You can get it on Amazon now, I think. And so I'm from Keswick and a small town thing, but it actually is probably the best hot sauce. And I think they do custom bottles. So I was thinking about doing a custom hot sauce with a picture of pre-construction houses burning down on it. And I, I just I just couldn't think of a clever name to come up with like some sort of, you know, pre-con hot sauce. Yeah, um, wow. We got to get, uh, send that one over to Jordan Scrinko and see if he's got any wise ideas. Yeah. Anyway, DM us if you would buy that and maybe we'll actually put it into production and uh, toss it into the merch store. I feel yeah. like it'd be a good uh, 2023 memento. My mom actually got us some t-shirts for Christmas from the merch store. Did so, so here I am. I'm like, mom, not only did you get me my own gift, but you actually made me like, I think I probably made a dollar fifty or $2 yeah. off of that. Whole rolling in it now. I mean, <laughs> yeah. where are you going to retire? So shout out to Chetty's Hot Sauce and shout out to my mom for supporting our merch store. Yeah. Um, so what is the spicy topic that we are talking about today? Because this is like among the most controversial topics you can. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good one. Uh, something that we've talked about on the show kind of in passing, but have never done a full length deep dive episode on it. Uh, the topic today is rent control. So here's a tweet from Danielle Smith, who is Alberta's 19th premier. In this critical moment, Alberta cannot afford to pursue failed policies that make the housing challenges worse. Knee-jerk policies like rent control would have a devastating impact on housing construction and our entire economy. These policies would stall construction and increase the gap between housing, supply and demand, and ultimately slow the economy down. Then she tagged um, Jason Nixon, who is Alberta's Minister of Seniors, Community and social services and linked to an article that was like an op-ed by him, um, which we're going to get into. And then we're going to talk a little bit more about broadly about rent control. Yeah. Interesting that she tagged the guy who is the minister of seniors because they, they will have a part to play in, in this rent control battle and in the housing battle. Well, I, I think we're it, in anyways, you know, it's funny because we talk a lot about boomers, what's going to happen with their assets, et cetera. And, like in the context of real estate in Canada and boomers have a similar effect in rentals, right? Like a lot of them imagine in rent controlled areas have had rent rents uh, units for, from like the nineties. Yeah. And if they're, you know, if they're consuming a three bedroom that is an empty nest now, as an example, because their kids have all moved out and they're getting it at a discount is rent control really doing a good job. Right. And so that's, that's one of the arguments that gets used a lot. So, so Dan, walk, walk us through this article by uh, Jason Nixon then provide yeah. some context. Yeah. So the article by Jason Nixon, Alberta's minister of seniors, community and social services discusses the challenges of affordability of housing affordability in Alberta. Nixon argues against rent control, suggesting it would negatively impact housing construction and the economy. He highlights their current initiatives, such as increasing rent supplements and investing in affordable housing units. The government's approach includes enhancing rental assistance, building new affordable homes and reducing regulations to expedite housing construction. 
Nixon emphasizes Alberta's commitment to maintaining affordable housing and supporting renters and home buyers through long-term investments and policy reforms. Hmm. Interesting. Now, it's not hard to find articles arguing the alternative, the other side of, of uh, the, the puzzle here, right? So this comes from an opinion piece in a publication called The Hill. Is that your publication, The Hill? <laughs> no, this is my publication, the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. Great publication. Great publication, one of the best out there. Uh, the Hill, I can't comment, probably a great relative, uh, another genius in the family, I'm assuming. I think it's like The Hill. Um, the Parliament. No, because it's like from, this is from the US, so I guess there's a hill that US politics is yeah, on too. There's a specific hill. Down Couple, there. They just build, they build all these buildings on hills. They have to be monumental, right? yeah. yeah. And I quote from the Hill publication, by curbing excessive rent hikes and preventing regulatory or unjust eviction, rent control mitigates the power imbalances between tenants and landlords. It advances, uh, advances overall neighborhood stability and prevents an eviction crisis as our cities become more expensive places to live. Despite decades of false quote unquote, sky is falling alarmism by well-funded landlord lobbies. Rent control has done more to keep housing affordable and keep people in affordable housing than any other program in New York's history. So this is out of New York again, where uh, rent has been a topic of contention over the last several decades. Nearly 1 million rent regulated apartment house over 2 million renters with a median income of just $35,000. Renters would either be homeless or faced with crippling rent burdens without the protection of the New York rent laws that those rent laws offer. Yeah, so so that's sort of the, the counter argument. And I think it's funny because, you know, there's uh, from the economic side and we're going to we're going to kind of look at it from both sides, I think would be the it's usually what the, we do. On yeah, the show we, here. yeah, we should try. And it's it's funny because and, and and a lot of landlords that we speak with talk about how they want to invest in more landlord friendly states. But if you look at the or sorry, not just states um, areas, um, but if you look at the states and you see people investing in or if you look at where rents are the highest. It's typically in rent controlled areas, which is like, you know, it's very counterintuitive, but it's because you get a supply constriction relative mm. to to the rent that you can get and because people aren't super incentivized to build more. And there there is like a blended, I guess Ontario would be like a blended version where anything after 2018, so anything that you build today isn't rent controlled. Mm-hmm. So that's an incentive. You almost get an advantage against the remainder of the um the market, but anyway, this this guy, Nobel laureate Paul Krugman, mentioned that rent control is one area where economists largely agree that it reduces housing quality and quantity. I mean, that is a strong opinion and a strong consensus among those uh, economists. So, I guess, Dan, what would the long term effects be? So, really, it's all about investment. The strict rent control makes, uh, or what would be argued by Krugman and and the economists that have reached this consensus is that strict rent control makes rental properties less attractive to developers. It caps future cash flows. And so I mentioned in Ontario, properties built after 2018 are non-rent controlled. So they've sort of built a, a middle ground where you know anything that has existed prior to that, uh, any unit that has existed prior to that is subject to rent control. Any unit that you build today onward is not. And so 
you get a bit of an advantage as a builder today versus buying something mm-hmm. existing housing stock. And you know that actually kind of makes it more attractive to build than buy an existing building from a future rent growth perspective alone. Yeah, for sure, especially since we've seen all the stuff with PBRs and and the like the the government's drive to to incentivize that kind of construction. And and I mean, what you're saying it impacts investors uh, as well, right? Reduction in income can change the way a deal works and whether or not you can afford things like maintenance or any other expenses if you don't have enough cash flow coming in to to uh to make that deal work yeah and that's exactly it and in toronto a significant uh portion of renters are in the private market and restrictions on rent increases can devalue these investment properties leading some owners to neglect maintenance and so that article that i mentioned before from the hill quoted a study from washington dc and this kind of argues against it so so economists would argue that uh landlords who aren't making a lot of money are not likely to spend a lot of money on increasing the value of their properties, which is like that, that logic checks. Makes sense. Yeah. And not even that they aren't willing to, but they probably can't afford to. And so that's the argument that it decreases the value of housing or sorry, decreases the maintenance of housing. And we're going to get to the, the evidence behind that. But the, this article from the Hill that you mentioned, your publication or somebody in your family's publication, (laughs) uh, it says a Washington DC based study of tenant protections and living conditions found that 61% of tenants who were more likely to seek repairs after receiving the benefit of rent regulations with low income renters, especially reporting that regulations made them more willing to insist upon repairs. That logic checks out to me as well. It's like, if you're getting more rights, you're more likely to exercise more rights or ask for more rights. So saying, oh, hey, I don't have to worry about my landlord being like, screw you for asking me to fix X thing. I'm just going to kick you out now. Which never happens. Yeah. But we, I mean, then this is the thing. There's so much abuse. Like there was that article that came out recently. We got to do a thing on it that this lady who, have you seen this article? It's like, she's been abusing the landlord and tenant system in, in the, in Ontario for, we're, we'll do an, uh, a whole episode on it, but it's this article about the, and she, and they, it's like this expose on this lady who's basically been abusing the landlord and tenant board. And so in Ontario, where the landlord and tenant board is, is mostly inefficient as a result of being oversubscribed, there being too many cases and not enough adjudicators, that's where you really see like there are people on both, there are bad people on both sides. So I like just to to compound on the joke you were making there, (laughs) but the survey revealed that protected units turned out to have better conditions than market rates. And this is, these are surveys. So this one's a little bit less empirical, let's call it uh, economic evidence. 20% of rent stabilized units having poor conditions compared to 25% of market rate units having poor conditions. Now, my only challenge with this is that you're kind of using like a Likert scale for like what would call it like poor conditions. And it makes it a bit subjective. But I, I guess I'm just trying to tell the whole story here by giving that that example that was in the article from The Hill. Yeah. Let's jump over to another article here. Uh, this one by Murtaza Hader uh, back in 2017, which came out just before the Wynn government back then here in Ontario decided to remove rank control on buildings 2018 or newer, which Danny had just mentioned, they suffer. And when profits are squeezed, landlords are less likely to maintain maintain properties affecting both private and public landlords. Kind of just reiterating what, what that other article just said, right? If there's less money for the landlords, they are likely to spend less money on whatever it may be, but primarily upkeep of those units. Yeah, exactly. And I think it, it is 
the the next question becomes like do a lot of people you hear the statement high prices cure high prices right so increased rents incentivize landlords to build more rental which we're seeing a ton of people mm-hmm. building rental right now because rents are climbing as a result i would say of population growth but i recently had an economist rip me apart on twitter for saying that you can't oh, just nice. make assumptions like that which is true <laughs> like you know i mean but there there those two things exist side by side let's just say it that way cause causation not ca- or causation versus causality what is it no that, i don't know that sounds about right. no it's a different thing i'll, I'll remember it um i got uh holiday brain where what is it it's it's december, december 29th. 29th you'll be hearing so, this uh episode next year yeah. <laughs> okay so do, do high prices cure high prices like the you know house prices got too high and then buyers stopped buying them and then they came back down right the cure for high prices was high prices so Murtaza also did an article in 2021 called CMHC says rent controls work, but is it true? And then there's a chart in that article that shows that units not under rent control actually, and this is maintenance aside, the maintenance piece I think we've covered pretty well. This is just whether or not rent control is working and says they grew by 2.3% while rent controlled units grew by 2.43%. So it's having the opposite effect. Well, I mean, that is a huge delta there as well. 2.37% uh, versus 2.43%. A lot of margin in there. Yeah. Yeah. I think it is funny though, because um, both of those are still below the rent controlled amount. And so it's like rent people who are not subject to rent control are just increasing less than that amount. Whereas people who are subject to rent control are, are increasing at that amount. Like, you know what I mean? They're, yeah. they're just going to hit the amount and be like, Oh, it's the government's fault. Yeah. Hey, we have to do this. Yeah. So that, that, that did kind of fascinate me. He also talks about vacancy, like how, what, what the difference between rent control and uh, vacancy decontrol, which I think we're going to, are we going to get into that a little bit as well? But anyway, if you want to read that report and it's yeah. findings. Yeah, so this uh, this is a report that says CMHC says rent controls work, but is that so? So this uh, this new report by, or not new, but this report by uh, Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corp explores the impact of rent controls on rental prices in the Toronto region and concludes that rent control accounts for 36.3% of the difference between uncontrolled and controlled rents. Some will see this as evidence of the effectiveness of rent controls for improving housing affordability. However, the findings of the report are more nuanced and deserve a deeper dive, especially since housing economists argue that rent controls hurt the housing market outcomes for renters. So a deeper dive it shall have. Dan, walk us through the next piece here. Yeah, so this goes back to the repair part that we were mentioning, and and it says a vast body of literature shows that restrictions on rent increases dissuade landlords from keeping dwellings in a good state of or in a state of good repair. More importantly, rent controls restrict landlords' future cash flows, which we all understand, hence their profitability, resulting in a decline of purpose-built rental housing supply, which I think very much took place. Yeah, I mean the the future cash flows and stuff, and and just. You know, with rent control, it, it's a tricky thing because when you have everything else going up, right? It's just the same thing as it's not getting a uh, a raise at, at your job or a raise at work where inflation is, let's say, you know, at five or 6%. Everything else is costing you more money, but you're still making 70 grand. It's the same thing with rent, right? Like it costs me more to hire the plumber. It costs me more to... Uh, get the grass cut. It costs me more to replace the light bulbs or the furnace filter. Everything, everything costs more, but I'm only pigeonholed into raising it, let's say here in Ontario, 2.5%. Meanwhile, inflation and everything else is double that. You know, that that's that's where I think the landlords are having a, a bit of a hard time with that. So 
Yeah, I think we discussed that in the inflation hedge episode at yeah. length too, where from my perspective, it's almost like a hidden tax, like where the government can solve a lot of economic problems. And this is probably a little bit in the weeds, but whatever, we'll go there. <laughs> the government can solve a lot of economic problems, especially for a house, like a super indebted country like Canada by inflation. Like there's really only a couple of different ways. There's three ways that you can do it. One is reduce rates. Two is reduce leverage. So force your country to deleverage in some way, which you can't really do. And then number three is in, inflate the value or mm. inflate the economy and decrease the buying power of a dollar, which in, inflates the relative debt of people. It, it hurts the lower class a lot more because it, it it increases or sorry, it inflates the cost of everything that they need to buy and, the, and reduces the buying power of their dollars. But for people who have uh, debt, it decreases the relative burden of their debt. Right. And so that's where it's an advantage as a landlord if you have a debt on a, on a property and inflation comes through. But the part where, and this is where, like, that, assuming that we have household indebtedness of 118% debt to disposable income, which we do in Canada, yeah. which is top five in the world, you need that <laughs> to take place. You need to inflate away the debt. And I could see it being a policy, a, uh, outcome that they're object or that they're that they're comfortable with over the next little bit what what the challenge is is your costs inflate as well as a landlord so if you're if you're all of the maintenance etc goes up and you can only increase your rent at 2.5 percent but your everything else is going up at four percent five percent six percent whatever i mean if it's you know gas heat if you're paying if you know like your gas heat just went up almost 100 percent as a result of um the carbon tax alone you don't get to net that in yeah, um, that, that's pursue, right? That's Unless your tenant's cost. paying. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so so what the government I don't know if it's the the government necessarily, but what the economy does is it kind of takes it takes that margin out of you as, as like almost like a form of a tax because it's getting something out of you, uh more out of you than you're able to get out mm-hmm. of it through the tenant who you can only increase at at a cap. So it it's it's a really tough thing from a pricing power perspective for landlords right now yeah. in an inflationary environment. And this isn't something we talk a ton about in a non-inflationary environment. It really matters in an inflationary environment. So anyway, jumping back out of the weeds here, uh, what C- the CMHC report labels rent control is effectively vacancy decontrol is what Murtaza Hader argues in this article. Landlords can only raise rents per the government's prescribed guidelines for tenants renewing or continuing with the lease. Uh, but for vacant units, landlords are free to charge market rents to renew new tenants. So it's basically say, he's basically saying that it's, you can't. It's like not. It's also just not kicking people out, mm-hmm. which I think is probably like that's a far better policy objective because the reality is if if it goes vacant, like in New York, a lot of these rent controlled units they they stay there even if they turn over, right? And so so the systems are a little bit tougher, and and these have been proposed. Like so I think Toronto proposed making it so that you they would cap rents on on turnover which would be it's a whole different ball game there'll be a full episode about that yeah but i mean from just from that standpoint i mean i know some of my i don't want to say older but let's say middle-aged friends that have been living in toronto for i don't know 10 15 20 years in the same unit some of them in midtown one guy I'm thinking about specifically right now who's got a beautiful two-bedroom, you know, the older units with the parquet floors and, and yeah, like yeah. the bigger windows and that stuff. 
he pays $850 a month and he paid that. And I think it's, I don't even know if it's gone up 2% every year, 2.5%. I think they've done that occasionally, but you know, just, just a landlord from way back in the day. And it's, it's just crazy to see because, you know, I think the average for a one bedroom now is like almost 2,300 and this guy's got, you know, he's drastically below market rent for something like this. I mean, the two bedroom in his building, if it wasn't rent control, would probably go for, I don't know, close to 3000 if not more. Anyways, back out of the weeds, back into the study here. The study uh, uses changes in rental regulations in Ontario to distinguish between rent controlled and market rent dwellings. Market rent being whatever the market demands at that time. So market rent, as you're listening to this for a one bedroom, is in and around that $2,300 nationally. Rental buildings constructed in Ontario after November 1991 were exempt from vacancy decontrol, hereafter known as rent control, and are referred to as market rent units. The controlled rental dwellings are in buildings constructed earlier than 1992. So the CMHC report analyzed between residential rents in private sector purpose-built rental dwellings in in the Toronto region between 1992 and 2016, surveying more than 5.4 million rental transactions to find the the average uh, rent of market units was 37.7% higher than that of rent-controlled dwellings. This led to the conclusion that rent control reduces rental prices. I mean, 40% is... uh... Is high. That's meaningful. Yeah, that's meaningful. Yeah, yeah. over that period. I mean, and I mean, over that period, that like period of time. Is that nineteen ninety two to twenty sixteen? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, like, I'll I'll just guess what the the like. So what? It, that's all. That's thirty years. So yeah, you're like a little like you're they're growing at one and a half percent more per year, one point two five percent more per year, which compounded over that decades period yeah. equals you know yeah. almost forty percent. Yeah. Okay, so the report goes on to find that less than 1% of those 5.4 million rental transactions that were uh, examined in Toronto were recorded in newer buildings constructed after 1991. Successive rent control restrictions coupled with changes to the capital gains tax in the early 1970s were followed by sustained undersupply of rental buildings for decades. Tenant advocates have argued that the absence of rent restrictions give landlords uh, carte blanche to impose exorbitant hikes in rent, which we've seen a lot recently. Uh, Again, the CMHC report finds evidence to the contrary. The average growth rent for uh, average growth rate for rents during 1992 and 2016 was 2.37% in market rent units, which is lower than the 2.3% in rent-controlled units. So again, interesting stuff there. 2.43%. Yeah, so that was that stat that I was um, mentioning before there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so landlords, despite the opportunity to jack up rents, simply cannot do so. And and the way that it's vacancy decontrol is like if you, you know, in like in, in a province that doesn't have one, we're going to go through which provinces do and don't, but like Alberta as an example, I mean, you could basically just go to the tenant and be like, hey, I'm going to increase your rent by 
$10,000 a month and then they'd and, be like, oh, I have to leave. And right? we've seen that. We've literally seen that in, in both, uh, we've seen it in newer buildings in, in Toronto and we've seen it in buildings in, in Alberta as well. It's made the news where, hey, my landlord showed up and they want like an extra two, $3,000 a month, right? right? I think in one case it was literally, yeah. my landlord raised my rent $10,000 right. a month. But that's just an eviction. Like, I, I, and that's why they exactly. call it, that's why he's saying it's a vacancy exactly. decontrol. Like it's designed. And, and I think that from a policy objective perspective, like that's fair to say like, okay, because like there are limited reasons why somebody can and cannot evict someone. And if somebody's paying their rent and all these things, and you know, that's, that's fine. Um, they should, they should be able to, you know, be entitled to reasonable enjoyment of the property, which is like the legal term. Mm -hmm. The question is like, <laughs> I love that term. Reasonable yeah. enjoyment. I'm enjoying yeah, it here. Please. Reasonably so. <laughs> I'm reasonably enjoying it. Please let me stay. But so, you know, like you can't, just like you can't rent evict somebody and not do the renovation or you can't friends and family evict somebody and not have your friends and family move in you shouldn't like the argument is that it's a vacancy decontrol because like you shouldn't be able to just be like hey here your you rent's know. going up a thousand percent yeah yeah exactly and it's it's funny because like you know when the banks use that that I, that term like customer deselection on renewal i had said i was like they're Pretty already doing much, yeah. yeah it's the same thing like yeah. it's like oh hey do you want to pay seven percent no okay cool you're okay, not a sorry. customer anymore yeah, yeah. Oh, like so yeah sorry so just as usual the banks can do it but uh, yeah. us civilians yeah. we don't get the same rights yeah so so put another way uh, market rent units respond to market conditions so that rents decline when the economy slows rent controlled units offer stability in rent which implies that even when the economy is faltering rents remain the same or even increase um, and I guess we're going to see whether or not, because I would anticipate, like, it seems like rent growth is kind of tapped out. It has been um, coming down a little bit for the past couple of uh, months. So I'm interested to see, you know, if we see a downturn next year, mm -hmm. what how that materializes in rents. The average of rent controlled buildings was uh, 50 years uh, by comparison. The average age of rent controlled buildings was 50 years. By comparison, market rent buildings were much younger at 1273 years old on average. So they, they couldn't have just said 13. Yeah. <laughs> The age difference also implies differences in amenities such as modern heating, ventilation, and air conditioning HVAC systems, which is, that's actually a good point because they're probably cheaper to run too, right? Um, infrastructure for high speed, faster elevators, exercise rooms, and swimming pools. Um, older buildings are unlikely to have such luxuries. Yeah, you, it, it's one of those double-edged swords, right? Because you've got the new buildings that have all that sexy stuff, right? Like the all the amenities, the rooftop pool, the, the steam room that works 30% of the time. Now that's all new. You'd think it would be it would be less capex or opex to run that, but the older buildings have more capex in in some cases, right? Like you know, this roof is thirty years old, and we need a new roof. And construction has changed a little bit from from uh, you know the average age of forty nine point five years old for rent control buildings to the market rent buildings that let's just call it thirteen years old. Very different types of construction. Um, and, and I think both would have their, their challenges. So at the same time, one cannot assume that all new buildings would have these amenities and hence using a building's age as a proxy for all those amenities could lead to leaving out one or more relevant variables. And that's the thing. There's so many variables when we look at stuff like this. So to conclude that rent control reduces rents requires observing the change in rents in market rent buildings after they have been converted to rent control buildings. Otherwise, we are essentially concluding that rents in newer buildings are higher than those in older buildings. So what will also help policymakers is to determine whether rents would be even lower if vacancy decontrol or other tax measures enacted in the early 1970s had not severely constrained 
the supply of how of purpose-built rental housing in Canada. So that con- concludes the CMHC report and what um, I guess Murtaza's perspective on it in that article. And so, and I think that like that one is nice because it bounces back and forth between like the what's right and or you know what what the CMHC's report says and what he believes. Obviously, as a as a critic of rent control, but rent control can also uh, lead to mismatch between tenants and rental units. So once a tenant has secured a rental rent control apartment, he may not choose to move in the future and give up his rent control, even if his housing needs change. And this is where I was talking about like boomers having stuff. And there's a, there's a couple of different a- academic documents on that. Glazer and Lutmer, uh, Sims and Bulo and Klemperer. I, I pulled this from somewhere. I'm going to have to find uh, the original source who who's quoting all of these articles. But the misallocation can lead to like empty, empty nesters living in family-sized apartments and young families crammed into small studios, which is clearly an inefficient um, allocation of housing, obviously, right? And and Wow, you know. does that sound right on point for right now, right? I mean, yeah. you've got literally family, young families, whether you're a family or not, or whether you're a person that maybe dreamed of starting a family and you're crammed into a small studio apartment just thinking, I there's no way I can have a family in here. I've, you know, I got me and my chihuahua in here and it's and it's tight versus... How many people listening right now have a grandma or a grandpa or a mom or a dad or, you know, whatever kind of elderly family members that are still in the picture that are living in that that big house that you either grew up in or grew up visiting and, and have not vacated? And we've done a ton of uh, content on this, both on, on, on the podcast here and then both on our social medias where, you know, not only uh, here's a couple stats, right? There's 5 million empty bedrooms in the GTA alone and, and probably a few million more across the country. Uh, Canadians have the third biggest per capita square footage for housing in the world after the United States and Australia. So the empty nester household living in a family size apartment and young families crammed into small studios which is clearly an efficient allocate inefficient allocation. Yeah, I mean that is that is right on point, and I feel like that as kind of the the demographics of Canada start to shift over the next decade or two, along with the shifting in housing, we'll see. I I think that those that that allocation of space is is going to drastically change. So it also kind of goes to how people are saying that boomers are hogging all the housing. And boomers are overhoused. And that's not just the houses they own, it's the houses they rent as well. And I wonder if people who support rent control feel like it's a good thing to have all these empty nester boomers that are renting three bedrooms with rent stuck in the 1990s. I mean, honestly, like that's not helping anybody. It's 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 an excellent point because it's, it's, it's an equivalent to like the criticism that people have of housing and how like, you know, people who have owned houses for 20 years basically have, are benefiting from the growth in the housing market and young people aren't, which is true. Yeah. But it's like literally the exact same thing happening in, in rent control. And I think if you were to be able to illustrate that in data, it would probably show much uh, uh, just the same story. Well, going back to that, that those people I was just telling you about, some of my friends that live yeah. in Midtown Toronto that are paying, you know, they were renting 20 years ago, right? They started renting in the late 90s, or early 2000s. And, you know, now look at anyone trying to go down there and rent anything right now. Like they'll never have a, that same opportunity, right? And they're going to be paying three, four or five times more than, than those people are for smaller units. Yeah. Yeah. And so it, it does give a lot of economic advantage to people who were in the market earlier, like rental or ownership. And that that's an, an economic, like that's a negative externality and inefficiency, right? So to, I guess to go back to that, the, and what I just found what I pulled this from, it says, what does economic evidence tell us about the effects of rent control? It was by Rebecca Diamond. 
and it was on the uh, brookings.edu website. Um, that was where those couple of studies. Um, so there's a couple more here. So it says similarly, if if rental rates are below market rates, renters may choose to consume excessive quantities of housing, right? So you might mm. not, yeah, if you're getting it for cheap, like think about New York's a great example, right? All of these New Yorkers who are like globetrotters now and because they have a place there that they're there for one month a year, or they're there, you know, and maybe they go down during COVID, they moved to, to Miami, Ooh, right? Or whatever, South good. Beach, right? Yeah, but everybody <laughs> yeah. was, no, but I mean, like if you yeah. can afford that, if you're, if you're paying, tw- you know, 10, 20% of market rent, and and now you're hoarding a unit. When With people this, talk about people hoarding houses, it can happen in the rent, uh, in rents as well as a result of rent control. And and am I correct to say that we kind of saw that being exploited in like the Airbnb arbitrage type thing? Yeah, I mean that would be a great example, right? Where, like yeah. people people identifying cheaper apartments, renting five or six of them, and then going and putting a twenty five or fifty percent upcharge on that apartment after you know throwing a nice couch and some IKEA furniture in there, right? Like that's literally what this says right here. Yeah, no, exactly. It's a great point. Rent control, they argue, can also lead to decay of rental housing stock, which we had mentioned before. Landlords may not invest in, in maintenance because they can't recoup some of these investments by raising rent. So let's just, I'll quickly go through um, the pros of rent control. You can go through the cons of rent control just as a summary. And I then we're going to talk. The yeah, I know. I'm, well, it's new year, new me. And I'm, I'm going <laughs> to be, I'm I'm be, be the bull this year and you can be the bear. So, <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. And for those of you who are joining us from, you know, if it's, you made it your new year's resolution to invest in real estate or, you know, you want to educate yourself, yeah, educate, learn more, yeah. you know, develop yourself. We're happy to have you on board. Thanks for joining us. And, um, Give us a shout. We love to meet our audience, especially new people. And let us know what you, if you want to hear something specific on the show, give us some feedback, maybe leave us a review. We have an amazing review that we're going to leave, that we're going to read probably, hopefully if we have time at the end of the show, yes, it might or be the next one. That one's, it's, it's, it's too good. It's a really, really good review. And, I, and I'm like, I'm at the point where I'm like, I was like, is there a way we can make this a competition? Cause I feel like people are competing to have like the best reviews now. Yeah. And so just keep doing that, please. Um, anyway, for, for anyone that leaves a really great review, if we read it on the show and you, and you, you can send an email along with it and, and Dan and I will hop on a call with you. Well, we'll, you can have a 30 minute call with, with the two of us. And that's just a little thank you for, uh, the hilarious and creative reviews we're getting. Does that, does that sound right, Dan? I think yeah, like that, that's a fair trade. That's a pretty good bribe for yeah. today. Yeah, for okay, sure. There you we'll, go. we'll work on some better bribes. But yeah. yeah, that's that's it for now. Okay, um, back to the pros. Yeah, so the so the pros of rent control are predictable and re- uh, predictable rent and increases. That one's pretty obvious. You know, that ensures that they're predictable and modest um, at a set amount. It's stability for tenants. So it offers a sense of security against unexpected large rent increases and displacement. Higher occupancy rates for landlords. So if rents are cheaper, you'll have lower vacancy rates. So you actually might have less turnover and less like rent seeking behavior, people shifting between units. And so you could have, you know, you could have a market where rents are high, but you'd have higher vacancy and more people comparatively shopping. And then finally is community benefits. So stable tenancies under rent control can lead to stronger communities because people stay there longer and they have, you know, ties to more and, and then ideally would have more local spending. So it's better for the local economy. Yeah, we like the local economy. Okay, now let's talk about the cons of rent control. The first one being limited housing quality and upgrades. So landlords may not be incentivized to improve or maintain properties beyond the minimum requirements, potentially leading to declining housing conditions. This is where we start to ease into that very ugly word that landlords hate, which is slumlord. Uh, so don't be that. 
discourages new construction. Rent control can deter new construction and investment in rental properties as the return on investment may be seen as insufficient. And this basically just means if you've got an old building that you can't jack up the rents uh, and it's in disrepair and you need to go in and fix it, what is your cash on cash going to return? Like if you've dumped a bunch of money into a building that has a limited return. The third one being reduced rental mobility. Rent control may encourage tenants to stay in their units longer than they otherwise might have. Um, that is very true. I know people that literally will not leave their units because they're like, I'm paying $900 here. The minute I leave, it's going to go over $3,000. Um, that reduces their mobility and the potential to uh, and the potential effect of uh, availability of housing for other people trying to get into the market. Um, it also has an impact on the overall housing market because rent control can create disparities in the housing market, benefiting some tenants while leaving others without access to more affordable options. Uh, it can also lead to shortages in rental units in more higher demand areas. The final con here is the administrative costs. Implementing and administering rent control programs can incur significant administrative costs. And that piece is really interesting from my perspective. Like when you think about the state of the Ontario and BC landlord and tenant boards versus like Alberta or Saskatchewan, it's not just pure cost, but also the impact it has on creating backlogs, more conflict, which means more court dates, more resources, more wait times, et cetera. hundred percent. I mean, I think it, it also allows people on, on both sides to take advantage or to kind of, you know, have a little bit more wild west mentality. Cause you're like, Hey, I can start messing with your stuff because, or I can do this because I'm not going to have to deal with this for nine months or 16 months in your case, Dan. I mean, I remember that, that tweet about how the, how broken the landlord tenant board was. It was like, it's the equivalent of having a bank robber in your store or a robber, not a bank robber, a robber in your store and forcing them to stay there robbing you for nine months before the police show up. So if there's anyone from the landlord tenant board listening, (laughs) come on. Um, and the final con is inequality. Rent control policies make uh, might benefit tenants who are relatively well off um, or that are um, uh, uh, that have been there for quite some time. And these policies are rarely tested. Uh, anyone allowing anyone to live at reduced rates. So that, that one's especially interesting when you talk about like uh, inefficiencies in the landlord and tenant board because you hear a lot about like lawyers, right? Like these lawyers who there's that guy like driving a McLaren, like living and not hadn't paid his rent in like two years in Toronto, right? So I mean, people who have who know the system and who have a lot of money can just basically have free rent. Yeah. Um, so it's a scary, it's a scary thing, especially when you've got landlords that are are good simple business people trying to provide housing that are getting taken advantage of by, you know, these so-called professional tenants or lawyers and McLarens or whatever it may be. Right. Okay. Dan, that was a pretty good pro and con list. Let's finish it off by going through uh, province by province with their rent control policies, what they include, how much you're able to raise it, et cetera, et cetera. Start us off here. Yeah. So we'll start with Alberta. Landlords cannot increase. I think I started this in um, in alphabetical order and then I added some at the end. So it's kind of like somewhat <laughs> alphabetical. Uh, landlords cannot increase rent uh, until a lease has lasted one year or past. So that's kind of your, your limitation on the timing of it. But there's no limit to how much the increase can be. So advance notice is required for periodic rentals. Interesting. 
in alphabetical order here from A to B, as in beautiful British Columbia, 3.5% is the limit for rental increases and landlords must give tenants at least three months notice of any rental increase, which can only occur every 12 months and they are actually linked to the rate of inflation, which is which is interesting here. So once a year with three months notice at three and a half percent in BC. Perfect. Next up, we have Manitoba, 3%, which is up. They had it uh, frozen, so it was 0% last year as a pandemic effort. So 2023 is 3%. Landlords can increase rent every 12 months with at least three months notice. Increases above the annual guideline rent require pre-approval from residential tenancies branch, which is, that's that's a pretty standard thing across from a province to province basis. Um, well, it's pretty standard that it has to be done on a renewal of a lease and that you can get an above guideline with a permit from the board. Okay, nice. Here in Ontario, 2.5% rent cannot be increased more than once every 12 months and landlords must notify tenants at least 90 days. So again, three months in advance, increases above the guidelines require special approvals. So the next one is Quebec, and this one's interesting because it's a, it's a sliding scale. We've talked about this before, but yeah. they really base it on what type of heating or like electricity that you use as a landlord because your costs could have inflated a lot if you're on heat pump or right. if you were something that was subject to the carbon tax and, or sorry, not heat pump, um, oil rather than a heat pump. And so their lowest cap is 2.3%, but I think it goes up to as, I want to say as high as like almost 7% with the ones that are on oil. We have another episode on it, so we'll bring it up again next time when we're talking a little bit more about utilities and stuff like that. But this is a good example of why it's worth starting to think about separately metering stuff in the present economy, especially when there's a lot of grants to do stuff like that mm-hmm. and capital available. I mean, MLI Select is a great example of CMHC's program for the, their environmental efficiency, where you basically have to increase the baseline performance of a building from its present year. You have to improve the performance of it by 40% to get 100 points on your environmental efficiency for CMHC. For MLI Select, I mean, if you're doing that, you might as well, again, individually meet your suites. Yeah. And and beyond capitalizing the cost structure in, that's also just good because it helps your tenants be more conscious of the electricity that you're using. Because you're so much more likely to abuse electricity if you- If you're not or, paying for it. Yeah, or, yeah, or abuse, yeah. you know, like the- um, Leave heat, the lights heat, on, yeah. do the or, dishes yeah. in the middle of the day. Yeah, keep your house extra off. warm, yeah. yeah. And, um, yeah, just cause you don't see it, right? Yeah. Like it's not even just, it's not even to uh, assume malice. It's just like, if you don't see it, it's Out hard. It's hard. To, yeah, yeah. There you go. So that's an original. Yeah. <laughs> You're so good at these. <laughs> uh, okay. Saskatchewan, no limit in Saskatchewan, no limit to the amount, uh, for fixed term tenancies, no rent increases permitted unless agreed upon by both parties at the start of the tenancy. So Saskatchewan doing their own thing uh, over there in the prairies. I like it. Now, Dan, uh, we've got five more provinces and territories here. Why don't you rip through them quickly here? Yeah. So Nova Scotia is 2%. I think that's the lowest in Canada. Newfoundland. And I, I think that one was temporary. There wasn't one for a bit. And then they did it as a, like, as a response to pandemic and, and uh, housing crisis. Um, Newfoundland, no limit. Northwest Territories, no limit. Uh, Nunavut, no limit, and Yukon is 3.3%. Um, and all of these are done at, at the end of a lease, by the way. So uh, a lease is designed basically to lock in a rental rate for an agreed upon period of time. That's basically the primary function of, of a lease. So that's why, so like 
if you have a six month lease, then on the renewal of that lease, you could do it. If you have mm-hmm. a 12 month or if you have a two year, sometimes you get tenants who want a five year lease because they want to lock in a rental rate for five years, right? In commercial, you see that all the time. I want five plus five plus five, right? Yeah, no, I mean, it's uh, it's fascinating to look at at Canada again, such a such a vast place and, and you know, not much uniformity or, or conformity among, among the provinces here when it comes to uh, dealing with tenant, dealing with landlords, uh, rents, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, this was a, this was a fascinating one for me. I learned something through this one as well, through the research we did for this, because rent control versus non-rent control was a, a very interesting, uh, interesting thing to look at. So hope everyone got a ton of value out of this. There's also, uh, you know, Dan, whenever I have a question about rent control or tenants or anything like that, I go to our esteemed colleague, Nikki, who's been a guest in the podcast, who's also one of our experts in our course and community realist who, uh, who comes on and graces us with her, her presence and her insane amount of knowledge when it comes to this kind of stuff. So remember, this is all important because tenants are the real asset. Uh, your real estate asset has to cash flow. And if it can't cash flow, you're likely in trouble. So take all this with a, a grain of salt, do your own research and, uh, and share this podcast with someone because uh, new year, new us, guys. So, and before we wrap up, I'm going to read this amazing review. It says the year-round Santas of Canadian real estate. It's Christmas Eve and I just gifted my kids the realness of life after tucking them into bed and letting them know that Santa was a real man, but did not fly around on reindeers and somehow slipped down 8 billion chimneys. Come on now. What a tro- what tropical country has a chimney? I think he was <laughs> on a surfboard in the tropical countries. That's what, what I heard. Um, but uh, he was a man that wanted to spread good human spirit with gifts just like Nick and Daniel. These gents are year-round Santas giving the gift of knowledge to solve the Canadian housing crisis and empowering Canadians that our real estate has many solutions, empowering both the investors and the end users. Ho, ho, housing. So, and that's by Affordable Browsing Housing via Apple Podcasts. And I think I I spoke with Mitch and this gentleman might actually become part of our uh, realist.ca course uh, in the near future. So love it. Looking forward to that after reading that review. So um, thank you very much. Leave us a review. Um, happy to have you Santas. on. Yeah, and uh, let's make this 2024 an amazing year because I actually, we're starting to see deals out there. Yeah. The market's interesting. Let's get some deals done. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group. License number 10317. Agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.